Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. I can't begin to tell you how much I love my guest this week. Richie Reseda experienced the school-to-prison pipeline firsthand when he was sentenced to 10 years in prison as a teenager. While incarcerated, Richie started Success Stories, a feminist group for prisoners which gained national attention. He's a wonderful musician, a talented designer, and a leader in the fight for abolition of police and prisons. He has such an inspiring story and gives me so much hope for the future. probably never heard anybody say anything like, well, he objectifies women, therefore I feel like he's a real man. Nobody says that. And a prison nation is a place where we ultimately are committed to undermining civil and human rights of marginalized groups if we can make the argument that the rights of people in power are protected. The subject of masculinity is a topic of conversation these days. It's something you see from the op-ed pages of newspapers to shaving And we've perpetuated a system of violence when we believe in this idea that violence is power. We are the police. Kings to be kings and slaves. Being slaves to young kings and slaves. Kings to be kings and slaves. Being slaves to young kings and slaves. My oh my, how things change. Except for the fact I'm a black in chains. Gold chains round my neck so I never forget. Old chains round the necks of those below the decks. Other ships who my name is Richie Reseda. I am a producer and an organizer who lives for the sole purpose of ending patriarchy and prisons, period. Sorry. I am not sorry. So, Richie, to start out, I just want you to share a quick overview of your story with my listeners. Yeah, I'm from Los Angeles, California. I grew up in the early 2000s, and much like most young male-identified kids I know, I bought into the story that I had to be tough and emotionless and violent and have money and quote-unquote have women to be a real man. So that's who I sought to be, you know, in middle school. And 
Los Angeles way of responding to that was with zero tolerance policies and over policing of Los Angeles schools. And I was heavily criminalized starting from when I was 12 years old. I was first arrested for play fighting, then again for leaving school early to get a haircut. And it went on and on, choke slammed by the police for talking during an assembly. When you were held? Uh, when I got choke slammed, I was 14 yeah. or 15. For talking in an assembly. So in a white neighborhood, what would that punishment be, do you think? Just maybe getting sent to the principal's office? Yeah, if that. I mean, even to right. say talking in assembly is kind of an oversimplification. What happened is, and I don't know if they do this in other schools, but in LAUSD at the time, they would have what was called tardy sweeps. So when class starts, not school, like going from one class to another, as soon as the official class time started, the teachers were instructed to close and lock their doors and all the kids would be locked outside the classrooms and the school police and the security guards would go round everyone up and make you do everything from like standards to just sit around and do nothing. Or even sometimes we'd have to do like hard labor, like go pick up trash. And the part of LA that I'm from, the San Fernando Valley, it gets to be like 110, 114 degrees. But anyway, it was during a tardy sweep. And the school police officer was giving us this lecture about how this is her school and we better not say an effing word. And then this kid was on his phone and he looked up to me and he was like, what did she say? And I literally said, she said, be quiet. And then the next thing I knew, she just like grabbed me from the collar of my shirt. And she was significantly smaller than me. I mean, I was 6'2 when I was 14. But I knew that if I resisted in any way that it would just make it worse. So I let her kind of pull me. And then she really pulled me. Like once I let go, she tripped me over her leg and did something, some jujitsu type. I don't know, but had me on the ground and had her arm against my throat and was shaking her mace in my face talking about, I told you not to effing talk and blah, blah, blah. Is this the same principal that asked you to drop out? At that time, I do believe we had that principal. Yeah, he asked me to drop out because once I started getting trained as an organizer by Patrice and Mark Anthony, I had really turned my life around in a way. I went from failing out of school to getting all the credits I needed to graduate by the time I was in 11th grade. And I wanted to graduate with the 12th graders. But the principal kind of remembered me not only from the time when I wasn't doing so well, but also from all the activism that we were doing on campus. And he was like, no, if you don't want to go to school here, just drop out. What does it say to you about how the education system works for kids who are struggling? That's so crazy that someone just said you should drop out. It appeared to be pretty common. I think it says a lot. I think it speaks to what we spend money on in Los Angeles, but also as a country like LA County spends billions of dollars on police and not a lot on schools. So you have overwhelmed schools that don't have the capacity to really deal with the students who are doing well, let alone students who are struggling like I was. And we also have a culture of punishment and violence and of setting schools up to be like prisons. So I think to have me off campus seemed like a relief to my principal. Yeah, I would probably say that that is a laziness, right? And people, I think, in those positions who don't want to actually put in the work to help a child probably shouldn't be in education, let alone in education in an area where you don't have the greatest funding and that you do have to put in the extra work for children to have opportunity and equal opportunity and equity. So when you were a teenager, you were arrested. Is that right? I was arrested a lot of times when I was a teenager. <laughs> I'm not sure which time you're talking about. Studies have repeatedly shown that the legal system targets Black and Latinx people with harsher prison sentences than white people arrested for similar offenses. African Americans are nearly five times more likely than white Americans to be incarcerated. And young men of color are much more likely to be singled out for prison. 
This systemic inequality and overt racism are hardest on men of color without a high school degree. About one in three black men who hasn't graduated high school is currently incarcerated. And there's a 70% chance that black men without a high school diploma will spend time behind bars before age 35. I was arrested at 12 for play fighting, roughhousing. I was arrested at 13 for leaving school early to get a haircut. I was arrested at 14 for what they called vandalism, but I was actually scraping the dirt off my desk because it was so gross. I was arrested or detained that time and I was 15 for talking during that assembly. And then again at 16 for drug possession and again at 17 for stealing, and again at 18 for something I actually didn't do. They said I matched the description of somebody who committed a robbery and I went to jail for like six days and then they let me go. I had nothing to do with it at all. It was at 19 when I robbed three stores and they tried to give me 150 years to life and I ended up getting 10 years and two strikes and I went to prison for seven years. You went to prison for seven years and you said before that you felt that there was great pressure to be a real man as a young person and that meant sleeping around, being tough, stuff like that. That's lots of what we think of now basically as toxic masculinity. What kind of impact does it have on young men and boys today, do you think? I think we teach young men and boys that we get our value from our ability to be violent, to control women in particular sexually, and to have money. And that if you're not doing those things, then you don't have value. Not only are you not a real man, but you're not like a worthwhile person. In 2018, the American Psychological Association published the APA Guidelines for Psychological Practice with Boys and Men. The first report of its kind, the collected research found that, quote, Traditional masculinity, marked by stoicism, competitiveness, dominance, and aggression, is, on the whole, harmful. To not be a quote-unquote man is like the worst thing that you can be when you have that gender identity in this culture. So people are literally willing to kill sometimes for those things because what they're really fighting for is a sense of their own value. I just think we have this image of prisons being extremes, right, in one direction or another, men who are hyper-masculine, right, who are just like lifting weights and looking for fights all the time. And it doesn't seem like an easy sell for feminism. Do you think that's an accurate reading of the situation? I think talking about feminism anywhere where there's a lot of cis men is difficult. I think people in general try to hold on to their power, even power that they got illegitimately or at the expense of other people. What made it particularly difficult to start doing feminism workshops in prison is that there's like no breaks. It's not like you can go home and step out of that world. And because in prison, men don't have access to money or some of these other ways of getting value in patriarchal society, all we had was violence. So somebody who wasn't willing to be violent, you're like the lowest of the low totem pole, living in perpetual fear, being victimized. The the myth and the thinking in prisons is that I either have to be a victimizer or I will be victimized. Now, I would say that same myth exists outside of prisons, but the difference is in prisons, there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to hide. And there's no other way to get value from patriarchal society but violence. So violence is such a key part of prison culture. That's what made it particularly difficult to have the conversation. But I think it's also why the conversations did so well and spread so quickly in prison, because what I learned doing feminism work in prison is that if you give people the opportunity to be free, they're going to take it. What does it mean for a man to be a feminist? I think it means the same thing for anyone to be a feminist. The traditional answer that we hear is 
a feminist is someone who believes in the equality of all people, regardless of their gender. I've heard it expanded. I saw it on Twitter somewhere where it means a feminist is someone who believes in the equality of all people, regardless of their gender and fights for that to be reality every day. So at this point in your life, you go to jail. Were you already interested in social justice work? Yeah. So when I was failing out of school when I was 14, I got brought into a youth organizing program that was being led by my mentors, Patrice Cullors and Mark Anthony Johnson. That's amazing. With who they are in the world today, I'm not surprised because when I met them, I was 14 and they were 21. And I think back on who they were and what they were doing at 21 years old. It's just amazing. So they had graduated from the same high school I went to, obviously seven years before I even got there. And they went and got their addiction studies degrees and came back as addiction studies counselors. They created jobs for themselves and then used those jobs to also start organizing youth. And that was my introduction to the social justice movement. And it made total sense to me. Now, it doesn't mean I stopped hanging out with gang members and doing the other things that I was doing to be seen as quote unquote real in the world but I got it. And I did get deep into my organizing work. And Mark Anthony was taking me to feminist men's groups. And the first feminist text I ever read was The Will to Change by Bell Hooks. And it all hit me as true. So when I got to prison and I wanted to feel that freedom that I saw in those feminist men's groups, that freedom between men who were free to hug each other and have emotions and be full human beings, that's where I went. I went to Bell Hooks and eventually built up the courage to try to spread that to the other men I was incarcerated with. When you're in prison, how do you stay connected to the outside world? Is there a way in which that you felt still connected or grounded to the environment, to freedom even? Everybody doesn't necessarily have that access. I was very blessed that I did. I had an amazing community. I had an amazing partner. I had people who picked up the phone when I called, who loved me like deeply and loved me through my harmful behavior rather than throwing me away for it. And I wholeheartedly believe it was only because of the love of my partner at the time, my community, my mentors, that I even had the emotional capacity to do any of the things that I was doing. Like when you're in prison, you can see who has people and who doesn't. You can see it like in their eyes Mm -hmm. because human beings, we just need each other. And If you don't have somebody who's giving you that love and that social investment from a positive standpoint, there's people in prison who are willing to give it to you, but it's usually people who are also hurting for it and are seeking it by being even more patriarchal and more violent. So you can see who has people and who doesn't, but it's really because of the love of that community that I was able to stay tapped in with what was happening on the outside. That's really incredible. And it is probably something that I think people who haven't had that lived experience don't recognize in our own Mm -hmm. power, right? And what we can contribute to someone's life who has been incarcerated. You started a group in prison too, didn't you? Yeah. So the program I'm talking about, I started a couple a couple of things. Everything I do now is things I started in prison, which I'm honored to say. And I feel like it's important to say for people who are incarcerated or anybody who's in a situation that feels impossible that it's not impossible. But yeah, the program that we started where we were doing anti-patriarchy work is called Success Stories. And now we're in four prisons, a county jail, a bunch of reentry facilities and growing nationally. Oh, that's amazing.
How old are you at the time that you got out of prison? I was 26. So I want to try to go back to your youth, and I want you to really try to, if you can, because I'm sure you've thought about this, tell me how your experience shaped the way you look at policing. I have never had a positive experience with a police officer a day in my life. A prison nation is also a place where we blame individuals for the suffering that they experience, and relatedly, we create new crimes, turning their problems into crimes, criminalizing whole groups of people in disadvantaged communities. People with mental health problems, people with substance abuse issues, people who are pregnant and can't get prenatal care, etc. A prison nation is a place where we have more aggressive law enforcement, militarized police, and we use those strategies not only to control what is perpetrated by the media as violent crime, but more mundane gender policing of non-normative behavior. I first started getting criminalized, like I said, when I was 11, 12 years old, horse playing in middle school. But every situation that I've ever been in that included law enforcement ended up with me being victimized. I'll give an example. My friend and I, I was 16, he was 15. We were hanging out with some other friends of ours. They were girls. They were both older than us. They were like 17 and 18. And her car broke down. So she pulled over to the side of the road and we all got out of the car and she called her mom. We, you know, we didn't know how to fix cars. And the police pulled over. And the first thing they did when they pulled over was they put me and my male friend, who was also a young black man, they put us in handcuffs. They took my shirt off, put us in handcuffs, and had to sit on the curb. And then they pulled the two young women aside and started asking if we were trafficking them, if they were okay, if we were abusing them. Mind you, they were actually older than us. One of them was technically an adult to the point where they were going back and forth with these girls so much that the girls started crying because they're like, no, actually my car is broke down. I'm scared. I'm calling my mom. I'm trying to get help. And you're interrogating me about my friends. I've had experiences where I've been parked and I've been pulled over. I've been pulled over at a gas station, (laughs) like pumping gas. And the cop pulled up and put his lights on. I didn't even know what to do. I was like, are you pulling me over? I'm out of the car. And he's like, get back in the car. And I got in. He said, do you know I'm pulling you over? I said, you're not pulling me over. I was already over. He said, you didn't have your seatbelt on. I said, that's because I was standing up and pumping gas. Long story short, they called backup and helicopters came. And one of the cops who came, this was in Westwood, for folks who aren't in Los Angeles, it's like a rich white neighborhood. One of the cops came who was Latinx and he told me and my friend, you know, y'all don't belong out here. What y'all doing out here? That's been my experience with law enforcement. When I was 15, 16, 17 years old, I had this like totally separate career as a pop star in all of Asia, which is just (laughs) a bizarre existence anyway. Like I had my own background dancers, the whole nine yards. And so I was a teenager and my producer was this amazing guy. He became like my best friend ever. His name is Jamie Jazz. He's just like the coolest, coolest, coolest. He wasn't that much older than I was. So we just related to each other and he was so awesome. And so we were going to lunch one day from the studio and I said to him, you want to drive? And he looked at me and this was my first experience where the lights were turned on basically and the wool was pulled back over my eyes. He said to me, oh, honey, I can't drive your car. And I was like, what do you mean you can't drive my car? He's like, I can't drive your car. It's a Mercedes. I'll get pulled over. Right. So this was like 30 years ago. And so having that person in my life 
shaped a lot of my experience with cops. I was honestly getting nervous telling those stories because usually what happens when I tell those stories to white people in particular, including the white people in my family, by the way, I'm half Jewish. My mom is white. I've spent every Sunday sitting at a table full of Jewish white people who knew me as all this was happening. My grandfather actually was a LA sheriff for 30 years. And the way that they would respond is, well, those cops that beat you up or those cops that called you the N-word or those cops that accused you of human trafficking when you were just in a car that broke down, they just shouldn't be cops. They're just bad cops. But the act of being a cop is not a bad thing. And for the people who think that way, it might be hard for them to understand why we would say, no, the whole system of policing is bad. And to those people, I would say this. Imagine I came into your house right now with a gun, ordered you out of the house, stole everything you had, and then spent the rest of my life investing everything I stole from you and building an immense amount of wealth for me and my family. And then I hired a bunch of people to defend your house from you. And you're not allowed in the house. You're not allowed access to the wealth that I've built by using your house and your things. At what point does it become my house? At what point do you stop feeling upset that I stole what was yours? At what point does the security force that I put around my house become legitimate? When does this legitimately become my house? Is it one generation, two generations, 50 years, 100 years? As time passes, I'm just getting more and more rich off of what I stole from you and using this security force to keep you out of my wealth that I have stolen from you. At what point does that security force become legitimate? I would argue that it never becomes legitimate. I'd argue that nothing existing on U.S. soil today, no company, no corporation, no organization that didn't come from indigenous people or black people is legitimate. I just can't see how it is. And the police exist within that. And all these things we see, like my best friend, JJ88, who got 40 years to life when he was 15 years old, or my other best friend, Charles, who got seven years to life when he was 16 years old for getting in a fist fight in which nobody died. These things aren't just an act of the system going wrong. The system was always meant to protect white property, essentially, and capitalism, to protect the system as it was. And all these kind of horror stories we hear are just examples of that. But they're not the system going awry. This is what it was meant to do. Right. They're the system working the way it's supposed to work. It's funny, I hear the same thing from immigration attorneys that are friends of mine who, you know, so many people say the immigration system is broken. And they say, no, this is exactly how the immigration system is supposed to be working. This is not supposed to be easy for people to come here because people are terrified to lose whatever privilege they have. I hear people all the time talking about, well, we live in two different countries. It's like, no, we don't. It's just that you are looking at these videos in a very different way because you think you have something to lose. You think that by fighting for equality and equity and liberation means that your privilege will not help you achieve some weird pseudo success that is really irrelevant anyway. I'm just so appreciative that there are people like you who go back To your history, which, by the way, is this traumatic for you to continue to retell these stories for the growth of people that have oppressed you for hundreds of years? I mean, that can't be a fun, easy thing to dive into. It's complex. It depends on the situation and like the container. Because I've also been really deliberate about where I put my energy so that I can do it in situations like this, right? Like when I have 
right. folks, other white folks in your audience who are like, I might not say all the right things or whatever, but I want to hear this. Like, I know that there is something that I can be doing better. I love to extend myself for those people. I am also a very privileged person, right? Cisgender, man, light skin, all the things. I appreciate when that grace is extended to me, when my heart is in the position of wanting to learn and wanting to do better and wanting to understand experiences that are not mine so I can show up better. So I try to remind myself of that when I'm having these conversations with white people. But I've also been in rooms where I'm like, yeah, I'm not doing this because they actually didn't want to learn anything or do anything better. They wanted me to prove my humanity to them. And that's what I'm not going to do. Amen. It's the difference between somebody saying like, hey, I really don't understand this, but I want to understand. And somebody saying, well, it couldn't have been that bad, right? Well, you did do this, right? Do you think that the idea of perfection in allyship is a system that is in place by the patriarchy? Like, where do we get this idea that we have to be so perfect in supporting one another? I think it is. Actually, I really appreciate that analysis because patriarchy runs off of shame. Shame is the gasoline for patriarchy. And I think that that shame culture, even us in the movement who are trying to do something better, we can still lend ourselves over and fall into the pitfall of shame culture. And, oh, you didn't do it right. Or you said this, you said this. So now you're going to get canceled, which actually goes against everything that this current movement is calling for. Like as abolitionists, as people who believe in transformative justice, we don't believe in canceling people. We don't believe in shaming people. We don't believe in shame as a mechanism of bettering human behavior. We understand that human behavior is transformed through compassion and patience and accountability, not through shame and punishment and violence. Do you feel that the consciousness of the nation is shifting? Yes, 100%. You Absolutely. Do. That makes me feel good. Our uh, prisons uh, are full of black people and, and, and Latinos uh, that, um, that we have to have an abolitionist imagination if we want to guarantee a future uh, for our city, our state, our nation, and for the world. I've been an abolitionist for five years. Didn't nobody know what I was talking about until a month ago. And now all of a sudden people know what abolition is and we're having this conversation. And it's literally those moments where I feel like the world kind of figures something out at once. People are like, oh, abolition, got it. It's when justice is about healing instead of violence. Okay, we understand that. Because that was hard for people. People didn't want to talk about abolition. People didn't get it two months ago. They were like, well, the system's racist, but we still need cops. But maybe people can go to jail for shorter periods of time or, you know, it should be even. But they weren't right. understanding that, right. no, building an entire system to enact violence against people rather than heal the people is the problem. Break it down for people. What does a world without police look like? Or what does a country without police look like? It has a couple parts. On June 5th, the Washington, D.C. mayor unveiled a statement painted down the street leading to the White House. Black Lives Matter. Within 24 hours, Black Lives Matter activists responded with their own message. Defund the police. This slogan caught on rapidly among tens of thousands of people protesting police brutality in the United States. Police, 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 police. 
But what does it really mean to defund the police? And what if it's not as radical as it sounds? First and foremost, abolition is an investment. Before it's a divestment, before it's a defund, it is a fund, right? Now we have to start with the defund because we got to get the money from somewhere. But abolition is first and foremost an investment. It's an investment into giving communities what they need so that people can thrive. And people who thrive are less impoverished and less traumatized and therefore commit less harm. That's step one. Now, that doesn't mean there will be no harm. It just will be significantly less harm. The second piece is when harm is done, our response, our job is to now try to repair the harm as much as possible, which means investing in healing of the people who are harmed and transform the behaviors of the person who harmed and transform the systems that put that person in the position to harm in the first place as opposed to what police do now, which is I got to go catch the quote unquote bad guy to put them in jail. So a world without police is a world without prisons. It's a world without state sanctioned revenge and violence. It's not a world without accountability. It's actually more accountability. Because if you're just harming me because I'm harming you, that doesn't actually make me accountable. That doesn't mean I recognize the harm that I did to you. That doesn't mean that I see your experience as legitimate. That doesn't mean that I'm going to change my behavior. All it means is now I'm hurting, which solves nothing. And the thing that you always have said every time I have heard you speak is that where is the healing in any of this? Not only to reform the person that potentially committed a crime, but where is the healing for the person whom which the crime was committed to? Where are the resources for a more compassionate, more empathetic, more functioning society? Precisely. And that, I think, shows the biggest failure of our current system. If you talk to most people who have been victims or survivors of grave harm, the system doesn't help them build back. The system doesn't protect them. The system's sole purpose is to go punish the person who did it because there's votes that you can get for being a harsh punisher. There's money you can get from having someone locked in a cage and being able to sell them products. There's not a whole lot of money to be made or clout to be gotten from helping people heal who have been harmed. So survivors and victims are often left in the dust when the system is done using them to convict somebody. And I mean, when you think about just Los Angeles and our city budget, right? I heard the greatest thing in one of my classes, which is budgets are morality Mm. documents. So what does it say about the morality of a city when there is more money spent in policing than there is education. Perfect example of why people say defund the police. There are 130,000 people in prison in California. Almost half of those 130,000 people come from Los Angeles County. We're just one of 58 counties and we fill up almost half of all the prisons in this state because we fund police instead of health care. We fund police instead of education. The way we fund police, I mean, Los Angeles, over half of our budget goes to the police. The way we fund police is basically saying, we're not going to give humans what they need to live healthfully and safely. We're going to starve them out until they do something wrong. And then we're just going to spend all our money on how to violently punish them when they do something wrong. And that's what defund the police is all about, is about moving that money away from the violent punishment and into giving people what they need so the harm doesn't take place in the first place.
there's got to be this point at some time in this country's history, in my opinion, we have never done this successfully. And it's such a basic thing, which is just to demonstrate our values in our actions. Because this country, we sure talk a good talk, don't we? Yeah. We're in a time now when the wealth inequality, the fact that this was before even the pandemic, that people were eight out of 10 were living paycheck to paycheck with one life experience away from total devastation. That shouldn't be in this country. And the oppression of people is basically what enables us to be this very financially divided country. The oppression of people to create more money. And it's exactly what we see in prisons and how slavery was not, slavery was reformed. It was not abolished. There are people in prison doing work for nothing and getting nothing from it. The prison fire department drives me nuts. <laughs> Most people don't understand that there is a prison fire department that when there is a fire in Los Angeles, a wildfire. They send prisoners out to the front lines who have very little training in this. And then when they get out of prison, you know, I'd be okay, somewhat okay with it if they got out of prison and then had the opportunity to actually be firemen. But they don't even have that opportunity because part of being a fireman is not having a criminal record. It's changing because of dope organizers. I was a firefighter in prison. I didn't work as a wildland firefighter. I actually worked as a city firefighter in this desolate county in a place called Tuolumne County. And I was paid 14 cents an hour. And we were given the same training that any firefighter gets. And I was pulling over and doing vehicle accidents, house fires, wildland fires, and being paid 14 cents an hour. But I do want to say, yes, that's horrible and it is slavery. But also the way that the prison industrial complex makes money is a little more complex than just exploiting labor. It is simply by the act of having someone incarcerated that these systems are able to make money because now there are contractors who can sell you things while you're in prison. Like your ability to call your family, you have to go through a third party and your family has to pay that third party called Global Telling to make those phone calls, right? When you buy clothes, when you buy shoes, there are private companies that are bidding to get the contracts to sell things to people in prison, to sell things to their families. Entire economies pop up around prisons just because prisons exist and because there are human bodies in them. So yes, it's about exploiting labor, but it's also just about exploiting the existence of humans, which is why we have such high prison sentences that are literally lobbied for by private companies, as well as governments that also want more prisons because then they can have bigger prison guard unions and make more money and bigger budgets for law enforcement. And that's why it's completely arbitrary. When I talk about the robberies that I committed, it was horrible. I'm by no means trying to say that it was okay and therefore woe is me, oh, I'm so bad, I didn't deserve it. Look, I deserved worse. If we wanna live in a world where we all get where we quote unquote deserve, where every negative thing you've ever done in your life is gonna be done back to you, let's live in that world. But I imagine we don't wanna live in that world, right? So I'm not saying woe is me, I did seven years in prison because I robbed these stores. What I'm saying is the way that they tried to give me 150 to life and then landed on 10 and I ended up doing seven, it was all arbitrary. It was literally someone spitting out numbers in a courtroom with a DA badge on that probably forgot the number by the time they went home. But guess what? It changed the course of me and my family's life forever. Of course. And I'm so thankful for you, Richie. Thank you. I'm thankful for you too. I think that you're going to change the world. Like I feel it. I'm just so happy that I 
got to meet you. Thank, Thank you. you. I have just a few more questions for you, and they're kind of philosophical. I'm wondering if you can try to figure out how your life would have been different if policing had been abolished before you were arrested. Wow, that's an awesome question. I appreciate that. Yeah, look, (laughs) I'm an artist before anything. I'm a producer. I make music. I recently got into producing films. Me, minus having to fight for my humanity and the humanity of my family and my community every day, it equals a life of bliss sitting in front of a piano. When I met Patrice and Mark Anthony, I was making beats. And I mean, I was strung out on drugs. I was 14. I was failing out of school. But in a world where I could have just kept working with them, the way they held me, the way they took care of me, the way they held me down, in a world where my Mm. community would have Mm. had the resources it needed for me to get help with the drugs, for my parents to be able to really be there in a way that I don't think they could, given that my dad had to work 12 hours a day for us to make it, right? In a world where our communities were invested in, in a world where I could have been studying music production at 14 and the things I loved being invested in, not only would I have had a more blissful life, I would have created significantly less harm. And that is the thing that I think people don't get. They hear defund the police and they think, oh, this is about being quote unquote soft on people who commit harm or people who break the law. No, when we are investing all our money into revenge, we are not investing it into your healing. We're not investing it into the healing of the people being harmed and we're not investing it into the transformation of the people doing the harm. So instead of having all those cops who costed this city and this county millions of dollars who I interacted with from you know the time I first turned double digits to now, if we were investing in the things that would have fed my soul and changed me from that way, then I would have not been getting worse and worse. But instead, we invested in revenge. So every time I did something bad, they did something bad to me, and then I did something bad again. (laughs) And that's what happened for nine years of my life. And I just don't see how the system is set up right now that people can ever break the cyclical nature of that. And we are failing as a country if we don't figure out a better way. If you can go back and talk to yourself at, say, 16 years old, what would you say? I would say who you really are is good enough. I acted the way I acted because I was insecure about how feminine I was. I was insecure about liking the Spice Girls. I was insecure about being into musical theater and America's Next Top Model. So I tried to cover it up with drugs and like fake tough guy shit. And if I could talk to my 16-year-old self, I would give him a hug and I would tell him that you are okay, just like you are. Every person who told me that back then are still the closest people in my life right now. And they are the reasons why my behavior changed. It was because of their love and investment that I am who I am today, not because of the torture of seven years of prison. I don't think there's ever a time in your life that you don't Hmm. need to hear that from people who love you. If you're living a life, fully living a life, and trying to grow and expand and soulfully adapt to eventual death, (laughs) because that's ultimately what we're doing, I think that we have to have those people in our lives that look at us and say, you know what, you're doing okay. You are okay exactly how you are. I think the importance probably gets less, but it's still important to hear that. So We have a lot of listeners, and they always ask me questions about how people can help. How can people support your work, first of all, and then how can people support the movement right now? I mean, the work is always moving and growing, so I'd love it if folks followed me. All my handles are Richie Reseda, 
just my name. Also, my organizations. I got a media company where we just make dope music and art to have these exact conversations. And then we follow everything up with an action campaign called Question Culture that folks can tap in with. Artists to follow. Question Culture. Richie Reseda and Indigo Mateo have been doing these brilliant videos. They did this one on America Breaking Up With Cops. And I think it's such a smart piece of art. So please check it out on Question Culture. We're about to drop an album for my best friend who's currently incarcerated. Success stories, we're doing toxic masculinity workshops in prisons and jails and other carceral spaces. Initiate Justice, we're doing work to end mass incarceration in California. Inspire Justice, which is who I met you through, Alyssa, is doing amazing work in the creative space and trying to get the entertainment industry to be walking in step with the movement. So yeah, I I encourage folks to tap in with all those things. In terms of like, how do you support the movement, the movement at large? I would say two things. One, do like the heart work and like the soul work of divesting yourself from the idea that justice is revenge. That's hard. That's hard for me. That's hard for all of us. That's how we were raised, right? We watched a movie. The bad guy hits the good guy. The good guy hits the bad guy. We all cheer, right? That's quote unquote justice. So doing the hard work of letting go of revenge and then supporting the organizations that were doing the work. I just named a bunch, Success Stories, Initiate Justice, Inspire Justice, right? Question Culture, but Black Lives Matter, the movement for Black Lives. And when you are following these people, it's one thing to retweet them and to reshare something on your Instagram story. But when you see those graphics that are like, call this DA and tell them this, call the governor of California and tell him to let the people in prison go during COVID. Call the city council and tell them to not put money, like those are the most important moments that we actually stop and call. Yeah, we have to make those phone calls. And by the way, phone calls work. People think, oh, well, I'm going to call. It's not going to mean anything. No, phone calls work. Two phone calls might not work. 20,000 phone calls, I can I can say this from my lived experience. I am here right now. I got out of prison two years early because of a law that we and a bunch of organizations in California fought to change. And when our organization went up to the Capitol to talk to this one assembly member about it, I was still in prison. And as soon as they sat down, as soon as our squad from Initiate Justice, Taina Vargas and them sat down, the assembly member said, I already know what you're here to talk about. And they started opening up file cabinets full of letters. They had over 10,000 letters regarding that piece of legislation. There is nothing to meet about. They're like, you have our support. We see this is what the people want. That literally led to me getting out two years early And I wasn't supposed to go home until March 30th, 2020. I went home on July 16th, 2018. So almost two years ago, exactly. My father passed away three days after I was supposed to get out of prison. So I'm just trying to make it real for people how much these letters, these tweets, these phone calls matter. Because of the 10,000 people who sat down and wrote those letters, I was able to get out of prison two years early and have a year and a half with my father before he died that I otherwise would never have had. That is how real those action items are. Wow. Richie, thank you. You're like this, I don't know, you're like a prism. (laughs) You're like a prism just like shooting off different colors on the walls. You're so special and I'm always here for you. Thank you so much, Alyssa. Thank you for being a part of the show and thank you just for being just an incredible person. So happy to know you. You inspire me daily. Thank you. Feminism involves so much more than gender equality and it involves so much more than, than gender. Um, Feminism uh, is, 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 it must involve a consciousness of capitalism. I mean the feminism that I relate to.
And there are multiple feminisms, right? Uh, uh, so it, it has to involve a consciousness of capitalism and racism and co colonialism and post-colonialities and ability and more genders that we can even imagine and, and more sexualities than we ever thought we could name. Feminism has helped us not only to recognize a range of connections among discourses and institutions and identities and ideologies that we often tend to consider separately, but it has also helped us to develop epistemological and organizing strategies that take us beyond the categories women and gender. Over the last several weeks, we've had a huge national discussion over whether to defund or abolish policing in America and what a true justice system might look like. During this debate, I've heard a lot of people, a lot of white people, hem and haw and talk about the semantics of language. Well, Chad, I think we should call it reform the police. I don't know, Karen, maybe we should call it rebirth of the police. Saying reform is bad marketing. You know what? I'm sick of it. Are you seriously arguing over whether or not you like the words used to describe these important ideas? Are you so hung up on your perception of the optics that you argue over basic terminology instead of fighting for the just causes those terms represent? Well, Chad and Karen, you need to get over yourselves and get in the real fight. The fight to defund the police. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry.